0: Dr. Ellen Wald joins us, president of Transversal Consulting. She's also a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and a Bloomberg opinion contributor. So, Ellen, thanks so much for joining us here. Again, President Biden asking or suggesting to OPEC Plus uh, to maybe pump some more oil to bring the price down. What's going on there and what do you think OPEC Plus is going to do?
1: Yeah, honestly, I I don't think that OPEC Plus is going to take this request all that seriously at this point, because there's so much else at play here other than OPEC Plus's production. And in fact, OPEC Plus just increased production by 400,000 barrels a day in August, and they're planning to increase by another 400,000 barrels a day in September. And increases of 400,000 barrels a day every month through uh, December and even beyond. So I don't think OPEC is going to be particularly receptive to this. I think that, that you know, they're going to say, well, look, if gasoline prices are up in the U.S., what are the other factors? Demand is up. Yeah. Um, there's also been issues with supply chains. There aren't enough truckers, and so some areas have seen um, problems with gasoline prices because they just can't get enough gasoline. But the U.S. as a whole has plenty of gasoline.
2: Well, and on those kind of supply and demand balances, which at the end of the day is basically what the oil market comes down to. Why do we expect that everything, all the adjustment has to come from the supply side, especially considering the Delta variant that could, in theory, weigh on demand? I mean, could we get a correction of oil prices to a lower rate, not because we need to pump more, but because people aren't going to want as much oil?
1: Well exactly. And and also you have to look at things seasonally as well. Summertime is at the time of highest gasoline demand in the US and after Labor Day it typically drops off quite a bit so we're already almost through the summer um, you've already got schools going back in session throughout the south so gasoline demand will probably be down there and then once school gets back in session in the north we we're, we're generally see gasoline consumption drop so it's uh, you know there's also other issues at play like the United States we're down about two million barrels a day of our own production um, part of that is due to oil companies not wanting to produce wanting to be more conservative and pay down debt but other issues issues include the fact that the Biden administration itself has this moratorium on issuing new leases to drill on federal land. And Mm. that attitude is making a lot of producers very hesitant to expand production that could help alleviate higher gas prices.
0: Ellen, when we talk to you, I always like to get your opinion on Russia, because that, to me, from a supply perspective, is, you know, one of the wild cards out there. What are we hearing from the Russians these days?
1: You know, it's interesting that you say that because um, last week the EIA numbers showed that the U.S. imported a lot of Russian oil and uh, more Russian oil than they generally th- generally import. And so um, we haven't had, you know, a formal statement come out of Russia yet, but uh, there was a report on the, um, I think it came from, from Sputnik News saying that um, OPEC members haven't discussed U.S. proposal for alliance to increase production, but consultations are not ruled out. In other words, well, maybe the U.S. wants to join OPEC if they think they should have a say. So uh, I think we're, we're still waiting to see what, what Putin has to say about this.
2: Well, speaking of Russia, they obviously wield a great deal of influence in OPEC plus and you know, the price war between the Russian Saudis created quite a lot of drama in the oil market last year. And then this year, there was some issue with the UAE in the latest OPEC decision. Could, just talk to us about how the dynamics in the cartel are working right now. Are they as solid as they once were?
1: Exactly, I think the dynamics are uh, are a bit more difficult now because, the, particularly because the UAE uh, has really been asserting itself and also asserting its own uh, financial interests. They want to produce more oil, and they see uh, that this would be better better for them. And so they are asserting, uh, you know, their leadership within OPEC. And from the kind of Saudi perspective, the latest OPEC deal was really hard fought, and they're not going to want to do anything to. Uh, set that balance that they've finally uh, gotten uh, in the group.
0: Dr. Ellen Wald, thank you so much for joining us. You are one of our go-to people here on the global energy market supply and demand. Uh, It's a fascinating story. Dr. Ellen Wald, president of Transversal Consulting, also a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and a Bloomberg opinion contributor. So she's got her hands full. All right, we hear a lot of Companies talk about being carbon neutral or they will be carbon neutral by a certain date. I'm talking industries like the energy industry, the airline industry. And it just really makes me wonder, what does it really mean to be carbon neutral? Well, Dr. Akshay uh, Rathi, Rathi, climate energy reporter for Bloomberg Green, uh, knows and based in London. Uh, Akshat, give us a sense here. What does it mean to be carbon neutral? neutral cuz boy a lot of companies and industries are throwing that about and uh, this is our big take story of the day what do, what do what do you have
3: so the scientific definition is rather straightforward which is an entity if it emits x amount of emissions into the atmosphere then it needs to remove that much uh, amount of emissions from the atmosphere so x Minus x equal to zero. That will give you a carbon neutral company, entity, country, what you might, whatever you might want.
2: And Akshat, you're basically talking about offsetting your carbon emissions. Yet, there's some question as to whether or not carbon offsets actually work.
3: Yes. So the story that we looked at today is a new phenomena in the oil and gas industry. And essentially, these are shipments of either oil or most of the time liquefied natural gas. And what companies do is sell them as carbon neutral shipment. Um, And the way they do it is they calculate the amount of emissions that would be generated from the production of the fuel uh, to the burning of the fuel. And then they buy uh, offsets from the open market at uh, really cheap prices the, the price that we quote in our story is about three dollars a ton um, and then they are able to use this label uh, to say that uh, the said shipment is uh, carbon neutral but the problem is these offsets which are really dirt cheap uh, don't actually remove carbon dioxide from the air they do some good things, like in the case uh, of our story, uh, these offsets were protecting trees in Zimbabwe, and in the process of protecting those trees, they were also helping uh, the local population uh, branch out and do things that don't require more land and yet uh, grow economically. But they do not remove the carbon dioxide, which the liquefied natural gas shipment did produce when it was, pre- when it was sold and burned.
0: Yeah. So, Akshat, in your big take story, I was fascinated by that. You know, the part of the story where you talk about these villagers were, you know, protecting farms Just tell us about that part of your story there, because that was really interesting.
3: Yeah. So uh, these are uh, large programs that were initially started under uh, the United Nations framework. Uh, the goal was to create a market where rich countries, which produce a lot of the emissions, like the U.S. or Europe. Uh, would find ways to reward uh, developing countries that do cut their emissions faster or protect forests. And this trading system was supposed to exist to enable the transfer of money to help developing countries meet their climate goals, because you didn't want them to be using the same fossil fuels that the rich country used initially to uh, become richer. The trouble is that market never got created because of squabbling in the United Nations. Uh, What ended up happening instead was, because these projects were being created, uh, they created a voluntary market to sell these credits. And so within that, uh, the specific project we looked at uh, is called uh, the Kariba Project. Um, And what villages do over there is um, they protect the forest from being lost, uh, so in 2011, for example, um, about half a percent of the forest was being lost every year. Mm-hmm. And when these people came through and started funding the projects, that rate fell fell to about 0.2 percent. So there's clearly been some impact, but it doesn't mean that they're planting extra trees and growing the forest and actually carbon, capturing the carbon dioxide.
2: Well, and how do you how is this decided? You have to plant X many trees to offset X amount of carbon. I mean, how do you come up with those values?
3: Yes, very good question, and really tricky, because think about the way carbon travels, right? Liquefied natural gas is being removed from deep underground where it's been sitting for millions of years. It's being then burned and put into the atmosphere. Trees, at best, they can capture the carbon and only keep it for their lifetime. The longest tree probably lives a 1,000 years, but most trees die within a few decades. And when they die, they degrade and release the carbon dioxide. So you're not replacing uh, one-to-one. The fossil fuel carbon is an additional carbon in the system, whereas the tree carbon really just recycles in the system. Um, And that's just trees. There are other solutions you can apply, such as um, uh, using minerals. So you take a, a type of rock, which can then react with carbon dioxide in the air, and then Uh, trap that carbon dioxide forever as rock rather than any other form, and that would be the equivalent of um, the fossil fuel. But when it's a nature-based solution like the trees, the the math is really hard to work, and that's why experts told us that just buying a few dollars' worth of uh, credits uh, for your uh, fossil fuels isn't going to make them carbon neutral.
0: So, Akshat, you know, Kaylee is a very cynical reporter, so I'm going to ask the question that she's (laughs) dying to ask, which is basically, do carbon offsets really help stop climate change, or is this just kind of a marketing ploy?
3: And because I am a science reporter, I'll have to give you a nuanced answer. So the nuanced answer is, they help, but not as much as we think. So when we buy carbon offsets, if we are thinking we are buying one ton of carbon, we are not really buying one ton of carbon. We are buying probably a fraction of that. And so when corporations use carbon offsets to balance their carbon books, that is actually, in a way, uh, a fictitious transaction that's happening. Carbon offsets or protecting forests is an absolutely key climate solution, but buying them through the offset market to be able to get rid of your carbon sins isn't the way to do them. Um, What is the way? That system needs to be created and there's a lot of work going on uh, around that, uh, but the way carbon neutral commodities right. are being sold is definitely not the solution.
0: All right, Dr. Akshat Rati, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. He's climate and energy reporter for Bloomberg Green with our big take story of the day. And i tell you, folks, these big take stories are phenomenal reporting, uh, great graphics, just a great read. And we have them every day here on Bloomberg. So go to Bloomberg.com. Uh, check those out. Some great reporting from our good folks at Bloomberg News. You know, when the pandemic hit, we saw corporate America, the big, big companies kind of rush to the capital markets, the debt markets, the equity markets, to shore up their balance sheets, to prepare them for an uncertain future. The question was, and is still, how about some of these small and mid-sized businesses? Uh, how do they deal with the pandemic and the following economic disruption? Well, Chris Giamo has a front row seat there. He's head of commercial banking at TD Bank, located in New York. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. I'd love to get a sense of, Kind of what your clients, your customers were thinking about in the beginning of the pandemic, how they dealt with the pandemic um, in terms of, you know, staying afloat, shoring up their businesses, shoring up their balance sheets. What did you see?
4: Yeah, well, thanks, Paul. Thanks for having me. And uh, I think as you opened it up, you, you know, you're spot on. Small businesses had to deal with this very differently than large corporations, You know, as you know, small business is the backbone of the economy here in the U.S., and many of these smaller companies don't have the resources that large corporations have. And, you know, we saw that they had to really rely on their banks and other um, accountants and attorneys and those types of vendors to help them, whether it was access to capital or executing on contingency plans as they dealt with this shutdown. And, you know, I know, you know, with us here at TD Bank, that's a role we played, um, not just with being a top 10 player in the Triple P program, where we distributed over 130,000 loans uh, with over $12 billion of capital to those clients, but really acted as that trusted advisor.
2: We talk a lot, especially with some of the large banks, about how consumer loan demand growth just hasn't really been there because they had so much cash batting their pockets after all the fiscal stimulus. That isn't, I know, necessarily the case for some of the small businesses. What has loan demand looked like post-stimulus, post-lockdowns, you know, as we recover?
4: Well, you know, uh, loan demand has been a little bit tepid, and there has been a lot of stimulus with the Triple P program and other programs for businesses, too. I would say that there's cautious optimism. Many of the businesses that we've surveyed or spoke to believe that they're going to expand in the near future. They see revenues going up. But that pent-up demand, um, you know, there's some headwinds there, too. You know, there's a shortage on labor, we're seeing ri- rising wages, difficulty for small businesses to hire, there's a supply chain disruption right now, and then with the current delta variant out there, those are some of the unknowns that I would say are the cautious part of that optimism I noted.
0: Yeah, you know, it's Chris, you know, lunchtime a walk around uh, midtown here and you know, you see obviously a lot of empty retail stores that that were there before the pandemic, um, and that's heartbreaking. But you're also seeing, you know, some signs saying coming soon. Um, so some new businesses starting to f- form. What are you seeing in terms of of that kind of new business formation, which I know for a bank is a is a, is a source of loan growth.
4: Well, you know, your observations are accurate because new business formation has increased. Throughout the pandemic, obviously there was some disruption. But anytime there's disruption, you know that that creates you know both challenges, but also opportunities. And there's a lot of capital on the sidelines still, and we do see some excess liquidity from the stimulus. And as people were harvesting cash in preparation, as, you know during this shutdown. So, you know, the entrepreneurial spirit, I think, is still strong and always very resilient. So with that disruption, you are going to see new business formations continue.
2: Does the Delta variant change activity? Have you seen any difference over the past couple of weeks as that has become, you know, a more prominent force in conversation?
4: Yeah, I think it'll have uh, businesses and entrepreneurs kind of press the pause button a little bit to see how this plays out. Um, There's a lot of obvious unknowns there, but there is uh, an effort to deploy the capital that they've um, had through the stimulus and that they saved to expand their businesses. But I think they're going to be a little bit cautious to see how this plays out.
0: Chris, how's the uh, credit quality of your loan book uh, looked here i mean I, i've been pleasantly surprised that uh, you know the the number of bankruptcies although we did see a number of retail ones early in the pandemic whether it's brooks brothers and, and the others it seems like the government support has kind of really been important and played a big part how's your your kind of credit quality in your loan book looked
4: actually outperformed what we thought the downside from what our risk models would say. And I would say when we talked to clients early on in the pandemic, when they were doing their projections, downside projections, the actual performance has outperformed what their downside was, whether they took a more conservative approach and appropriately so, as did TD and many banks, um, we are seeing that performance um, be stronger than we anticipated.
0: All right, Chris, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate getting your thoughts there, getting a good look at small and mid-sized market uh, from a loan perspective. Chris Gialmo, head of commercial banking for TD Bank. Well, President Biden is having some week in the halls of Congress this week. $550 billion infrastructure bill. trillion budget kind of winding its way through the halls of Congress. Uh, Let's get an update on kind of how we should be positioning these legislative wins. Uh, Jeannie Shan Zeno, Bloomberg politics contributor and a professor of political science at Iona College, joins us on the phone. Jeannie, it seems like President Biden can take a victory lap pretty soon if he chooses to. What do you think?
5: He did yesterday. We heard him, you know, a a little bit upstaged, a bit by Governor Cuomo. But besides that, the White House was able to take a little bit of a victory lap. But they were careful to say this is just the first step, the passage of the BIF, the infrastructure bill you mentioned at about one trillion. And early this morning, after a long marathon voterama, the passage just on a Democratic line of the three point five trillion dollar reconciliation bill. Um, Those two things they want to take in tandem to the House, and they want to try to move forward. But still at this point, he can't quite take that victory lap he wants to because it could be maybe fall, maybe some people even say early winter Hmm. before these bills get to his desk. So still a ways to go.
2: Yeah, so Jeannie, let's focus on the House because Nancy Pelosi might have her work cut out for her her here, wrangling the different sides of the Democratic Party, the progressives specifically. What do you expect will happen in the other chamber?
5: That is what we are watching. And as you mentioned, it's all about Nancy Pelosi keeping these Democrats together. So you have the progressive Democrats who are really focused on this reconciliation bill, this big soft infrastructure bill, if you will. That's what they want to see passed. Yet you've got the moderates. And again, all of these people facing reelection in 2022, they want to move forward on the hardcore infrastructure, that $1 trillion bill. And Nancy Pelosi so far has been very, very clear she will not move one without the other some people say she may maneuver a little bit on that so far she has not so that is the big task for Nancy Pelosi she only has a 3 vote margin so if mm. anybody peels off and just to give you one example look at the debate over the SALT we have some New Jersey, New York representatives saying no salt, no deal. Three of those people pull off, and it's dead in the water. You flip over to the Senate, and already this morning we heard Joe Manchin, Kristen Sinema saying 3.5 trillion too big for them and their constituents. So this is something of a tightrope that it's going to be fascinating to watch, but very perilous for both Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, and of course the White House.
0: No salt, no deal for someone who lives in New Jersey. I can I can understand that. <laughs> I'm mean. in
5: New York, and I can too, Paul. <laughs> exactly.
0: So, Jeannie, is this, I mean, in, if you step back and you're the White House, how big a win would this be? Or is this something, or is there still more to do? I mean, I, I'm just wondering, are, is the White House going to take this as... All right, we really have some strength here, and we can maybe get some more things done. How do you think the White House is viewing this whole process?
5: They have got to be very, very pleased so far with how this have go- has gone, and they should be applauded. They have not taken a hands-off approach. Previous White Houses have tried to do that, let Congress negotiate. Not this White House. They have been intimately involved. But you know, if they are able to do this, this will be the biggest change to social welfare in the United States since the 1960s. LBJ in the Great Society. This would be a monumental shift. But again, I want to underscore if if both of these bills pass in tandem. And again, it is a perilous path forward, no room to maneuver in the Senate and just three votes in the House. So again, this gives any single representative or senator outsized voice to say, you know what, no salt, no deal, or whatever you want to fill in on that blank where the salt is, and they can put the brakes on this thing. So there's a lot of negotiation going forward.
2: So still an if, but if it does indeed all come to fruition, it will be a bipartisan win, at least for uh, the bipartisan package, that $550 billion of new spending for the president. Will Is he likely to get another bipartisan victory, or is everything else going to be Democrat only from here on out?
5: I think it's very, very difficult to imagine that we would see him be able to pass, for instance police reform voting reform you know immigration reform all of these other big things he has promised in the modern presidency it's usually that first year you go big or you go home he's already had covid if he was able to get this huge win for him but they are going to then be face to face with a re-election for the midterms and Republicans feel like they can pick up the house and maybe the Senate so they feel the wind at their back on this even though 19 voted for this Biff we're going to see a real fight on reconciliation let's not forget the deficit a huge huge issue and of course the debt ceiling is coming to fruition we are set to run out of money as you both know october november and republicans are fighting raising the debt ceiling so they are going to fight because they don't want to give the president any more wins than this again if it passes
0: All right, uh, Jeannie, let's shift from Washington, D.C. to Albany. Uh, With Andrew Cuomo's resignation yesterday, what should we expect from the incoming governor, Kathy Hochul?
5: Well, speaking of having your work cut out for you, uh, Kathy Hochul, she has been lieutenant Governor, governor since 2015. For those of us in New York, we know of her, but her name recognition has been fairly low. So that is something she's going to have to deal with. But in terms of specific issues, covid And the Delta reopening of schools just in a week or so after she takes office, we've got an economic recovery that's stagnated. She is an upstate person. We've not had a governor from upstate in decades. All of the political power or much of it in the state is famously downstate. And then, of course, you've got a whole host of issues from corruption in Albany to infrastructure. And, of course, she, if she chooses to run, is going to be facing a really, really big field of potential. Potential Democrats in a primary in just a few months after she takes office. Well, yeah,
2: let's let's talk about that. How has the landscape for that gubernatorial election in 2022 shifted?
5: I think it has opened way up. Everybody from Letitia James to obviously Kathy Hochul, who would be the incumbent if she chose to run, to Bill de Blasio, Jumani Williams, Cynthia Nixon. I mean, you could go on and on. Big, big group of Democrats. And New York, like much of the country on the Democratic side, is fractured. You've got a lot of energy in the progressive left, as we saw with Cynthia Nixon's bid against Governor Cuomo last time around and you've got moderates who rule upstate so that fight is going to continue and Kathy Hochul is a moderate to conservative democrat that is how she has always defined herself so she will have to get the energy of the progressive left if she wants to win a primary in this state but she is also a very very good campaigner and a great fundraiser so she's got a lot to offer there and of course we have to say the first female governor of New York which is sad to say but in 230 years (laughs) we finally got (laughs) (laughs)
0: All right, Jeannie, thank you so much uh, once again for joining us and sharing your insights. Jeannie Shanzano, Bloomberg politics contributor, also a professor of political science at Iona College, is joining us on the phone there with some great insight, uh, not only in Washington, D.C. with this uh, budget moves, but also in Albany uh, with the moves there. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer.